Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. A parasite is an organism that lives on or in another and draws its nourishment therefrom. This broad definition is from the creepy, dreadful, wonderful Parasites blog, and my guest today is the author of that blog, Dr. Bobby Pritt. On the show, we're going to talk about how she became interested in pathology and parasitology. We'll talk about the blog and vector-borne diseases, and then we'll talk about how she was part of the team that developed COVID testing at Mayo Clinic. All right, here's Dr. Bobby Pritt. We're going to go all the way back and start in medical school for you. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to know, was there a particular experience or someone who influenced you that led you to the, the path to pathology? Uh, yeah, yes. The The short answer is yes. But I have to say that I was already thinking of pathology before I even went to medical school um, because I loved biology. That was my undergrad major. And I realized that I liked dissecting things and knowing what they looked like and understanding their function. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I didn't even really know that pathology was a field. And I asked one of my mentors, you know, boy, this is cool. Is there some sort of career in which I could do this? And they said, well, what about being a pathologist? So that's actually why I went to medical school was to be a pathologist. And then I continue to be inspired by, uh, inspired by uh, my awesome uh, pathology colleagues as as I went along. Right, right. Okay. You know, that that's funny that you didn't, I, I think that for a lot of people, like you don't hear about pathology early on, or even just lab medicine in general, and that, right. I, that might be kind of part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't hear about pathology, or they just think of it as like what they learned during their first two years, which can be kind of dry, depending on how it's presented. And that's really not what pathologists do. You know, we don't just teach about the different types of necrosis. <laughs> so right. yeah, I think that it's really up to us as pathologists to inspire the next generation of pathologists, try to work with them early on and, and let them know what a cool field it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So after you did residency at University of Vermont. Yep. And then, well, tell me a little bit about that. How, how, how did that go? It was great. I um, was born in Vermont and then lived in upstate New York, went back to medical school, but went back to Vermont for medical school. And then I just loved it there. I was so happy to be in Vermont. They had such a great program. I stayed there for residency. I was chief resident. Uh, that was back in the days when it was five years. So I mm, spent okay. my fifth year kind of doing a mini fellowship in microbiology. And that kind of you know led to my transition then to do my fellowship in microbiology. Right. So you did the Clinical Microbiology Fellowship at Mayo, which is where you still are. Yeah. Um, you know, and I have to say that I went to medical school and went into pathology thinking anatomic pathology, which is what I think most people think of. Most people don't really know about microbiology as a specialty or transfusion medicine or any other form of laboratory medicine. But thankfully, I had such good mentors at the University of Vermont, and I started noticing what they did in their actual day. And this is a really important point that I mentioned to all my students now. I'll say, you know, it's one thing to love the subject. Obviously, you want to be passionate about what it is, surgical pathology, cytology, autopsy, you know, fields in laboratory medicine. But look, at, look and see what the attendings are actually doing as well. 
So I came into pathology with this love of doing dissections, but I realized that, you know, most surgical pathologists aren't doing that in their daily practice, unless they're in a small private practice and they're doing their own grossing. Usually it's the PAs or the residents that are doing the grossing. And, you know, they're not necessarily doing a lot of autopsies. That's not necessarily a big part of most people's practice, unless you go into being like a forensic pathologist. And I kind of realized, boy, actually, if I stayed in surgical pathology, it would be mostly microscopy, which I love. But I also, I think, was insightful enough to realize that I like to mix up my day a bit and do different things. And that was when I first got that inkling that maybe laboratory medicine, clinical pathology was more suited for my personality because every hour, every day is different versus surgical pathology, where you could argue it's, it's, I wouldn't say repetitive if you love what you're doing, but it is a lot of sitting at a microscope. Right, right. Okay. As you became interested in clinical pathology, was it was it always microbiology that you were looking at or was it kind of broader at first? No, it was really microbiology. I thought micro was cool. Uh, nothing against the other areas of laboratory medicine, but they just didn't speak to me in the same way. And I liked microbes because they're like little animals. You know, it kind of brought me back to my biology roots. They have little life cycles. And uh, I thought that was cool. They're alive, unlike chemistry, which, uh, you know, is just a, a different kind of field. Right. So, yeah, I, I went into microbiology. Uh much to the disappointment of my surgical pathology mentors, uh, but it really, it's been a great career for me. I would strongly recommend, you know, people following their areas of interest, even if their mentors are kind of wondering if that's going to be a good field for them. If they're passionate about it, I think that they can make a really great career out of it. Sure, sure. And certainly these days, microbiology is a pretty um Yeah, hot, it's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. After medical school and after residency, you went back and got a master's in medical parasitology. Yeah, Uh, it was a really cool opportunity. So I went and did my fellowship at Mayo Clinic in medical microbiology. I got hired on staff and they said, we need a parasitologist. Mayo Clinic is big enough that they have specialists, bacteriologists, mycologists, and their parasitologist was retiring. So they said, if you take the job at Mayo as kind of a perk, as a sign-on bonus, you can go and get additional training in parasitology. And one of the options was to go to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and get a master's. And I said, well, who could say no to that? That's an awesome opportunity. So that's how that came about. It was fully sponsored by Mayo as part of the Mayo Foundation Scholar Program. Uh, So I had a salary. I was fully funded. Great way to experience London and just an amazing program too. living in London for the year, meeting so many people. It's such an international city. So um, it was a fantastic opportunity. You actually moved to London for what was that, a year? Yeah, okay. it was one year. I brought my husband, I brought my cat, <laughs> and uh, we had an apartment, a flat, as you'd say, there. And uh, so it was very different than being a poor student, uh, unlike a lot of my classmates that were fresh out of undergrad and, you know, were kind of scraping by on student loans. I had a salary, I was fully sponsored. So it was a, an amazing time to be there. Definitely different than the first time I went to London when I was, you know, backpacking it around with, you know, five bucks in my pocket or five pounds. (laughs) Right. Pounds. 
can we talk about the, the program then? What what was it like? Yeah. What kind of things did you do? Well, obviously, it's all about human parasitology and entomology. There was a large lab component, didactics from subject matter experts that studied around the world. We also did field trips. One That was a really memorable experience. We went to Slapton, which is um, in the greater area of Devon, which is in the far southwest corner of England. And we went around and collected feces from all sorts of animals and analyzed it using all these different methods for looking for parasites. We dissected fish and rodents. It was kind of cool. It brought me back to my biology days. Mm -hmm. Um, But we learned statistics. We learned critical thinking skills. It was an excellent experience. And it was at that time that I knew that I was accumulating enough cases that I really wanted to start a blog. And I felt like about halfway through my master's program, I figured that would be the perfect time to do that. Start a case of the week. That was always my goal was to make it a case-based blog. Okay. And and what year was this? 2007. Uh, And I knew it was such a great opportunity. I had all these colleagues back at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and I thought, well, I'll start it mostly for them. I wanted to start it for my colleagues and just share some of the cool cases I was seeing. But very quickly, my colleagues, my fellow students said, oh, hey, you're posting a case of the week. Could you include me as well? I said, well, sure. So I just started emailing people once a week, usually on a Monday when I posted a case. And it was just cases of things I was seeing in my master's program. And then I'd try to post the answer like on a Friday or Saturday later that week. And then slowly, just by word of mouth, people started passing it on. And then I had some folks tell me to ask ask if I would start posting to various listservs. Then I got onto Twitter at the um, urging of Jared Gardner, who many people Mm -hmm. know in social media. And he's like, why aren't you tweeting your cases? And I'm like, why would I tweet my cases? And he's like, just, you know, just say, hey, guys, I have a new case up. That was awesome. I got a lot of followers through that branched out into Facebook, LinkedIn. And every time I grabbed onto a different social media platform and started embracing it, um, I got, I reached more people and different people, which was really exciting. So, you know, now I get about 30,000 page hits a month, which I think is kind of, kind of cool for a very highly specialized blog. Yeah. Yeah. So this was 2007, you said, so this was kind of towards the beginning of 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 blogging and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. How long did it take for you to like once you had the idea to 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 do the blog to actually like get it started and get it going? I pretty much jumped right into it. I had actually done a case of the week as a resident just for fun. Back then I sent it out as emails. So I was oh, okay. pretty yeah and and I did it for about my my last year. It was my fifth year of residency. So I was pretty familiar with the format. I, I knew that I wanted to keep it short and sweet. I knew that people didn't really have time to read long answers. I kept it picture-based, definitely mm-hmm. kept it case-based. You know, I don't write like big essays on various parasites, but I'll try to cover hot topics and mention if there's been a name change or any controversies in the field. But my goal has always been to make it educational and fun. And, and I feel like I've, I've kept with that up until today. So I'm still going strong. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're up to the, what, 625 cases now? Something like that. Yeah. 626 by now. I wanted to ask you, like, do you ever do, because this is a weekly thing, do you ever do like a theme, like certain 
you know, certain types of organisms several weeks in a row or something like that? Or is it just kind of whatever you feel like? Yeah, great question. So first of all, I'll say happy Valentine's Day to you. Uh, Talking about themes, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm going to be posting a a Valentine's Day theme. Um, I can't say what it is yet, but some some of the ones I've done in the past have been like parasites that stay joined together, like the schistosomes, the male and female remain okay. in, in their little couple. So I'll do fun themes like that for various holidays. I've dressed up, you know, like pubic lace with Santa Claus hats and I've done Santa Laos <laughs> and various, uh, you know, it's kind of tongue in cheek. It's kind of silly. Uh, so sometimes I'll do stuff like that. Themes for various holidays uh, on my fifth, you know, 500th case, I had a big like celebration and mm-hmm. I solicited uh, requests from viewers. Sometimes I will do themes from week to week if I really want to emphasize a point. For example, like I might do a mimic one week that looks like, say, pinworm eggs. And then the following week, I'll do real pinworm eggs and then I'll compare and contrast them. But for the most part, I try to just mix it up and and get a good variety in there of the different types of cases, highlight all the different types of parasites. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned that you've gotten uh, cases submitted from, from other people as well, right? Yeah, people have now um, been submitting cases to me for, for years. So I have a nice archive. I honestly could probably just continue doing cases from my own lab because at Mayo Clinic, being a, a large reference lab, we have specimens coming in from all over the U.S. and even parts of the world. Um, but I I love having cases donated from different individuals and especially different parts of the world. Some of the cases I get are things that aren't endemic in the United States. Like we have this great case of an intestinal fluke, uh, you know, the fasciolopsis busky, uh, the large intestinal fluke, which is like up to seven centimeters long. We okay. don't see that. Yeah, we just don't see that in the U.S. Yeah. And this physician from India sent me a colonoscopy video of a woman who had hundreds in her intestine. I mean, it was just stunning, you know, and this poor woman and she was thankfully treated. It's a very treatable disease and she got completely better from it. But, um, you know, I love contributions from different people. And I actually have an arrangement now with Idzi Potters. He's a, 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 a lecturer in Belgium at the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp. And uh, he now contributes a case on the first Monday of every month. So it's kind of a cool way for him to highlight and, you know, help publicize the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp. And it's great for me because he has amazing cases. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a sort of a cross promotion type of thing. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I'll put a, I'll put a shameless plug out there that I'm always looking for contributions if anyone wants to send me cases. Okay. Okay. That's great. Yeah. Another one of your interests then is uh, vector-borne diseases. Right. And I know you've done quite a bit of work uh, in tick-borne and mosquito-borne diseases. So first of all, how, how did this interest come about? Well, it's a good question, Dennis. It seemed like a natural extension from parasitology because we certainly got the vectors submitted in the laboratory for identification, the ticks, yeah. the the fleas, the lice, you name it, usually not mosquitoes, um, but you know things that people find on their body. And so it made sense for me to be able to study and help identify and diagnose conditions transmitted by these arthropods. And I had the opportunity at work 
we needed someone to oversee that part of the molecular testing. And it was good for me too, because general parasitology is very traditional, microscopy based, but I also like the more advanced diagnostics, molecular diagnostics. So I got to oversee molecular diagnostics for uh, the organisms that cause Lyme disease, the anaplasmosis, babesiosis, and then mosquito-borne diseases, Zika, dengue, chikungunya. And um, by helping to develop and design the assays that get used for those, we've created some innovative assays two of which are flexible design uh, with FRET probe-based detection methods without getting into all the details. Essentially, they allow you to identify to the species level based on where a melting temperature peak shows up. And what we saw, it was actually an astute technologist in the laboratory who noticed that we got a positive result but the melting temperature peak wasn't at 64 degrees where we expected it to be. It was down at 51 degrees. And that's how we discovered that there was something there that was amplifying with our gen generic probes for Borrelia species, but it wasn't Borrelia burgdorferi, the normal cause of Lyme disease. It was something that had um, not a perfect match. And so the melting temperature peak was much lower. And that ended up being a whole investigation that it triggered and it allowed us to detect Borrelia maonii, which is a bacterium that causes Lyme disease in the upper Midwest in the U.S. So we now have two known species that cause Lyme disease in the United States. And uh, we had we had a similar situation where we detected a new Ehrlichia species also causing human disease in the upper Midwest. So that's how I got involved in those. Yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting. So these are these are new species that were never that were not known bef before. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, we got to name both of them, which was kind of fun, learning about the whole Latin names and all the nomenclature roles. But really, it goes back to just, I want to highlight that it was really that astute technologist in our lab that said, hey, this is this doesn't look right, who really just, you know, prompted our whole investigation. And of course, it was a huge partnership. We partnered with folks from the CDC, the state health departments, our local universities. We actually had 22 authors on our first paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and I had the fun task of coordinating all those different authors. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was it was a really great collaboration. So how long did it take then once that the, your technologist looked and said, this doesn't this looks unusual? How long did it take before you, you realized this was this was something new? Well, we figured it out that it was something new very quickly because then we took the PCR product, we sequenced it and we compared the sequence to what we were expecting. So for when we detected the new Borrelia species, it was clearly not Borrelia burgdorferi, very different. But all in all, the full investigation took about a year because we cultured it. We did studies where we went out and we looked for ticks to see, um, you know, we actually went out into the field and did something called dragging for ticks, where you go out and you collect ticks from the, the wilderness, you know, from the bushes and shrubs and et cetera. Oh. We tested ticks, we tested rodents, we got involved with entomologists and did the full investigation, found out um, for that particular case, there were six patients over a two-year period that we detected that were infected with this new species. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then we were able to write that up and publish that as well. So I would say, you know, we knew early on we had something unusual, but I would say the full investigation to characterize it took at least a year and probably about two years if you count all of the ancillary studies that we did. So okay. very cool. Yeah. And then the type of Lyme disease that patient would get from these from these species, is it are the symptoms different from from the other ones? Yeah, well, yes and no. There's definitely enough overlap that we could say that this is a form of Lyme disease. For okay. example, you get that erythema migrans, bullseye type rash uh, in some patients. But one of the differences is that some of the rashes were more diffuse. They were more just like a maculopapular rash all over the body, on the extremities, the trunk. You know, it looked a lot more spotted and not just a single bullseye lesion. But we definitely had patients who had a, a typical bullseye lesion as well. The patients that we detected were more acutely ill, and some of them were hospitalized, and that's not something we typically see in Lyme disease. So, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, there might be some detection bias there because there's probably lots of mild cases that just never have come to our attention. But of the six patients we detected, it definitely seemed to be a more acute febrile illness, a little different than your typical Lyme disease. So okay. I think we're still learning a lot about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we continue to detect cases, so we've been slowly monitoring it. And uh, thankfully, it does look like it responds to doxycycline if you catch it early, just like typical Lyme disease. Okay. And you mentioned these are in the upper Midwest. So you're in mi Minnesota. Um, yes. I'm, I'm in Wisconsin. Would I find those ticks here? You totally would. Yeah. Um, Minnesota and Wisconsin are where all the patients have been exposed to both of these tick-borne diseases. So the first one that we detected is called Ehrlichia muris oclarensis, named after Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Oh, sure. Uh, Yep, okay. and that's where the first patient was detected. And the second one, like I said, is called Borrelia mayonii, after the Mayo brothers, and uh, that we detected in patients from Minnesota and Wisconsin. I actually have a cabin in Wisconsin, and I've done tick drags on my property. And in one particular tick drag, 5% of the ticks that we detected were positive for Borrelia mayonii. Kind of oh, scary. Yeah, uh, that's not... <laughs> That's not something most people would normally do, I guess, on a cabin weekend. But <laughs> Not exactly, but it's kind of fun. I've definitely learned to branch out. And I think that's where my master's in parasitology helped me because we definitely learned entomology and we learned how to sample for ticks, how to do a tick drag. And I've teamed up with the CDC and the state health departments. I actually had a group from the CDC come up to my cabin for the weekend. It was awesome. We had a cookout and a barbecue, but we also went out together and dragged for ticks. <laughs> okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, I, I wanted to talk just for a minute about some of the uh, mosquito-borne uh, yeah. diseases, because I know you have some experience with malaria, which is yep. not something you would normally uh, expect to see in the U.S., True. We are not an endemic uh, setting for malaria anymore. I say anymore. Back in the 1950s, we were actually in the process of eliminating malaria. And people may not realize that, but in the 1800s, 1900s, we were very malarious. And in fact, you know, people died from malaria every year. Uh, and it was found all the way up along the East Coast. And the CDC was actually founded largely in part to finish elimination of malaria in the U.S., so I don't know if most people know that or not. Uh, nowadays, we do not have malaria except 
those cases that are brought in from people traveling to endemic areas. But being a large reference center and being at Mayo Clinic Laboratories with specimens coming in from all around the U.S., we see a lot of malaria in my laboratory. We have about two to three cases a week. I should say pre-COVID. Now, during COVID, people didn't travel, and we're still seeing that. People aren't traveling. So we actually do not have a lot of malaria cases these days. But in a regular year, it, it's not uncommon to get two or three cases a week. And sometimes in the summer, we'll have five or six cases of malaria. But they're all coming in from all over the country. You know, some patients are at Mayo Clinic, but a lot of them are just, you know, they're in New Jersey, California, Arizona, you name it. But the specimens are getting sent to us, not for primary diagnosis, because that should be done locally, but for confirmation and species identification. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Pritt right after this. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Bobby Pritt on the People of Pathology podcast. You know, you mentioned COVID, and I know you were part of the team that developed the COVID testing at at Mayo. Yes. Um, I've heard you mention in an interview that you know, you said, you know, you've been, you've been through a pandemic already, the, the H1N1, yeah. and then the smaller outbreaks like, you know, uh, MERS, Zika, Ebola, things like that. So while th- this was, you know, last year, then when, when everything was starting, when did it become clear that this was a different thing? This was a, a, a bigger deal? Yeah, well, I guess it just really, um, it started off the way they all started off. Of course, there's always a great deal of fear and uncertainty and speculation when we first started hearing about Ebola and, you know, we wondered, was it going to be at our doorstep all across the U.S.? Uh, Same thing with the 2009 H1N1. I had just started my practice, come back from London and, you know, was there for about a year when that came out. And, you know, at first we thought we were hearing reports that it was more dangerous, more deadly. Um, But very quickly on with all those past outbreaks, we realized they weren't as bad as they seemed. They were quickly contained like Ebola uh, or SARS, uh, the the original SARS 2003-2004, or they just didn't seem to be as bad like the 2009 H1N1 was an unusual year of influenza, but it seemed to be fairly similar to typical influenza other than the treatment was a little different. But this clearly with COVID-19, it just never stopped. We never saw it go down. Of course, it's still ongoing now and we're seeing new variants arise. But I think when it first started, when it first appeared, we were all wondering, okay, what is this going to be? Is this going to be like 
2009 H1N1 and Ebola and Zika. And of course, Zika kind of fizzled out as well. So none of us really knew what was going to happen. But then it started showing up on our shores and we started to have deaths and it was sweeping across the U.S. And then I think we just looking at the news, looking at the Johns Hopkins uh, numbers and seeing the deaths and the cases continuing to go up. It was really at that point that I think we just all realized this is this is very different. I think now I look at it and I think this is going to be something that we'll tell our grandkids about. It'll be like the 1918 influenza, the Spanish flu yeah. for people who lived through that. We're going to look back and say, oh, yeah, I lived through, you know, the 2019 COVID-19 and I was there. And, you know, we'll be mm -hmm. telling stories about this because this is going to be one of those just, you know, once in a century type of, of events. Hopefully. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. But right. uh, yeah. Okay. And then you said in that interview that, so Mayo had pandemic plans in place. So I'm curious, what, what, what were these plans? Yeah, well, you know, it actually started with the 2009 H1N1, um, but then I think it really got to the point when we were dealing with potential Ebola. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. I I was pulled in to help lead those efforts. At the time, I was over, overseeing our initial processing lab where all the specimens come in, and we thought, what would we do if a blood specimen came in from a patient with recent travel to Sub-Saharan Africa who has had a fever? How would we handle that specimen? What would be safe? What could we do with that? So we formed a big task force for high-consequence infectious diseases, and we we had a whole hospital incident command system that had been activated during Ebola, and we put together some very detailed plans with the goal of not just preparing for Ebola, but prepare, for preparing for any future pandemic. And we broke them down into tiers. You know, a tier one pathogen would be a hemorrhagic fever virus like Ebola or Lassa, whereas a tier two pathogen would be a respiratory pathogen like SARS and MERS. And we figured out for each of these what level of containment we would need, waste disposal, what types of testing we could do. And we were actually able to build a unit just for high-consequence infectious diseases and a special laboratory to care for patients in that unit. So that was all well and good. And that would have been really perfect – it would have worked very well if we had a patient with Ebola. We would have activated that laboratory. So we had all of these plans in place. I will say, though, that very quickly we learned that our plans for the type 2 pathogens, the respiratory virus pathogens, mm -hmm. those weren't very realistic. We initially thought that those individuals would also be housed in the special unit within our ICU and that our special laboratory would be activated to care for those patients. Yeah, that's great if you have one patient or two. Mm -hmm. But very quickly we realized everyone was going to get it. You know, anyone could get it, anyone in the community. And every respiratory specimen was suspect. You couldn't just funnel people through a special lab. So in some ways, we were definitely well prepared in that we had this pandemic plan. But in other ways, we still had to think on the fly and we had to adjust it because our initial assumptions were not completely correct. We realized it was more, you know, like, regular influenza, we had to assume that every respiratory specimen that came into any part of our laboratory could have SARS-CoV-2 in it. And we had to really start looking at all of our processes throughout all of laboratory medicine and pathology 
you know, cheek swabs that were sent for molecular analysis. Well, we now know that saliva is a pretty good specimen for detecting SARS-CoV-2. So we had to think about cheek swabs, saliva, sputum, um, specimens like pleural fluid that were going to cytology and hematology. Right. I think in a way it really helped us in that we, we, uh, reinforced all of our processes throughout the entire Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology. And so now we're actually really in a, a much better place. I think we were in a strong place before, but now I think we're just assuming that, you know, it's it's universal precautions. You have to assume that any specimen that comes in could have Ebola virus or SARS or any, you know, any serious pathogen. And so long gone are the days that we should be processing specimens on the open bench top if it's, you know, any specimen that could contain a serious pathogen. That's uh, that's a really good point. I mean, this is definitely a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of us that, like like you said, long gone are those days. I mean, anything could be infectious now, and you really need to, yeah. you, like, kind of go back and relook at sort of all of your precautions mm-hmm. and your procedures and, and reevaluate things. Exactly. We're a global society and things pass travel across the world in 24, 48 hours, as we saw with Ebola. And yeah. you can't assume that you are somehow going to get an advance notice. You probably won't. You know, a specimen will show up and then someone will flag that a patient has a potentially highly transmissible disease. So we have to think about that as pathologists and how can we protect our staff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I read that your group developed the, the, the testing for COVID like in a ridiculously fast. Uh, yeah. time. It was like 21 days or something like that. Yeah, it was three weeks. It was uh, for developing from scratch a lab developed PCR test, you know, reverse transcription PCR for a pathogen that we didn't even know existed two months before that. Mm-hmm. It, that was incredible. Usually developing and implementing a test takes about a year, if not more. Right. Um but we we did it all and we didn't cut any corners. We just worked 24-7 and we had a team of nine people that really pulled together. It was under my colleague, uh, Dr. Matt Binninger and his leadership that he pulled in lab techs. We had our fellows working on it. So we got them in very engaged right away. And it was just round the clock work. But we got that up and running. The very next day after our lab developed test went live, the Roche test on the Cobas 6800 became commercially available. So then we brought that in too. You know, the more the merrier with SARS-CoV-2, the more tests you have, usually the better. And so we ended up at one point, we had almost 10 tests that we were running to some extent for SARS-CoV-2. But it all started with our lab developed test. And that was a real workhorse, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, all throughout this pandemic. It's been one of our key tests that we've performed. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really impressive. The next thing I wanted to talk about then, you've got uh, quite a lot of teaching experience. I mean, and this goes all the way back to your undergraduate days. Um, So what is it that you find rewarding about teaching? You know, I guess I just I've always liked helping people understand things. And I've. I guess I have a talent for it. I, you know, it's funny because I was always very painfully shy as a young kid and uh, as a teenager, but yet I had jobs as a teenager, you know, a whole assortment of jobs. And at various times I had to train people and 
I consistently had people tell me, you're really good at that. You, you explained that so well. I really understood that. And I really enjoyed that. I guess it's just something natural for me is to start explaining things. <laughs> I, I look around when I'm teaching and I, I think I'm very uh, perceptive when I see someone who looks like maybe they aren't quite getting it. And then I try to change tactics to explain it in a different way. So I guess it just kind of naturally happened, but it is true. I really enjoy it. It's been a large part of my practice now. Uh, it's one of the things that I tell medical students when I'm telling them why pathology is such an awesome career is because you really do have that opportunity to do a lot of teaching. It really is our Mayo Clinic Three Shield practice. You know, we have education, clinical practice, and research, and I get to do all of that every single day. And for me, teaching has really been a big focus of my career. These days, what's your sort of specific teaching role? Well, I have a whole bunch of different learners. So I do some classic didactic teaching uh, for the medical students. I give them lectures, although I try to make it really interactive. So my students all know that I'm probably more likely to ask them numerous questions throughout the whole lecture. But I'm also teaching pathology residents. I'm the program director for our medical microbiology fellowship. I'm the medical director for our MLS program, medical laboratory scientists. Um, So I have a number of different hats for Six years, I was the vice chair for education. Mm-hmm. Before I took on my current role, I'm now the chair of the division of microbiology. So I see it as always as always being a, a large part of my practice. It just, I guess it comes naturally and I definitely enjoy it. Okay. Okay. I, I heard you on, I think it was the, is it called Answers from the Lab podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about uh, teaching and you mentioned that. The word meta metacognition, or I think you call yeah. it thinking about the process of thinking. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's Which, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've learned about the science of education. And it's only been recently that I've been around PhD level educators and I've learned about adult learners. I think before that I just did what worked. And I guess mm-hmm. I was probably doing some of these practices without knowing it that they had names. But yeah, metacognition is the process of thinking about how you learn. It's the study of how you learn. And I did realize that I've learned in a number of different ways that worked well for me, but not everyone has had that ability to learn things. And I remember talking to some of my friends and I'll, and they say, well, how did you memorize all those facts? And I'll say, well, I created mnemonics. I created rhymes. I visualized yeah. them. I drew pictures. I, you know, I, I just, I've learned all these little tricks of, you know, like, like we all do to get through medical school. How do you memorize all those long names of drugs and everything? But not everyone has, has those that they don't just automatically, you know, come naturally. And I had a friend who said, well, I just, I just look at the page and I close my eyes and I just picture where everything is on the page. And I said, well, how do, how do you do that when you have 50 pages that you have to learn? And they're like, well, that's why I don't do as well on exams. I can't remember all that. And so I remember work, I remembered working with her and thinking, well, you know, this is the way I learn certain things. Like if it's a list, I put it into a logical procession of ways that, you know, that it would make sense or I'll come up with mnemonics and I taught her all these things. Anyway, those are all forms of metacognition. It's just learning about how you learn, you know, like I learned when studying metacognitive practices that highlighting text in a book is not very efficient. You 
don't really remember the stuff you highlight. But right. that's something that people learn along the way. So I I got to learn what works and what doesn't. And I've definitely used those skills to help uh, teach others, especially people who are struggling when they're trying to, you know, just commit things to memory, for example. And I imagine that those methods, I mean, they work differently for different people, don't they? They do. And some people are more likely to draw pictures. I remember drawing out the clotting cascade, the coagulation cascade. Um, oh, sure. You know, <laughs> but other people don't need to draw it out. They would rather like have a, another way of memorizing it. So I do encourage people to get creative with what works for them. And I'm also known uh, to come up with some really bad <laughs> mnemonics for remembering certain things. Um, and I always tell people, I'm like, hey, if this helps you remember it, great. But if not, disregard it. Don't fill your brain up with this. Like, for example, the microfilaria, um, well, the filarial worms, one of them is loa loa. And you probably remember learning all these and trying to differentiate all the microfilariae. And if you remember your studies, you learned that you tell the different microfilariae apart by if they have a sheath or not, and also what the tail nuclei do. And if the tail nuclei go all the way to the tip, or if they're empty in the tail, there's no tail nuclei. And so I always teach my students that in loa loa, the nuclei floa floa to the tip. They go all the way down to the tip. And I always tell them, all right, this is a really bad, it's really corny, but if it helps you remember it, then great. And I've had a lot of students come back later and say, oh yeah, loa loa, the nuclei floa floa to the tip of the tail. And I'm like, all right, great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, what, whatever works for people, I just tell them to embrace it. It seems like sometimes the, the goofier those things are, the easier they are to remember. It's true. Right. Yeah. All right. Last question. Um, okay. Through all your 625 uh, <laughs> cases of the week, what have been some of the most unusual or, or most memorable cases? Uh, yeah, this is a really tough question because I love all my cases. I think okay. they're all fascinating. But, you know, I would say some of the cases I've had the most fun with have actually been things where I've done little sci science experiments with them. So, for example, there was uh, a case where someone submitted something that I recognized as banana seeds or the precursor to banana seeds. Um, it's something we commonly get in the lab. Uh, but they look kind of scary if you look at them in the Petri dish. They're like these little brown stringy things. And if you were a patient, you know, you saw this in your stool specimen, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, what is that? Mm -hmm. um, and I had had people say before, well, how do you know that's not a true parasite? And so I took that case as an opportunity to recreate what people were finding in their stool. And so I took a banana that I bought for lunch and I digested it in protonase K. And over a 24-hour period of time, I was able to digest out all of the, the mushy, white, yellow parts of the banana, just leaving those central strings, those like precursors to the seeds and, um, and do kind of like a before and after. And I was able to show that the specimen that had been submitted that we called banana seeds was identical to what I recreated from a true banana that I could say legitimately, there's no question. This is, this is banana. Those have been some of my favorites uh, because those are just, you know, they bring me back to my biology days where I get to do little science experiments to sure. have fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Dr. Bobby Prith, thank you very much. This has been great. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, Dennis. 
here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Lachman Sung from Detroit's Daily Docket. How did the idea for this come about and what, why was this the right time to, to start this podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea came from Dr. Lavity. And forensic pathology, unfortunately, suffers from a, a couple of different things. One of the big things is that there is a shortage of medical examiners. Yes. And it could be for a number of different reasons, but we wanted to find ways that we can expand the number of applicants we have for our own building, obviously a little selfish Mm -hmm. on our part, but we want to get people moving into forensic pathology. And we're trying to think of different ways to do so. And we, all of us in the office give lectures and presentations, but that only reaches a very small number of people, usually people that are they themselves interested in the area. But by opening it up in a podcast form, I I think our audience is much more broad and it's not limited to those people who, like you said, can only come to our seminars. So by having it out in the out in the ether, anybody that think they might have an interest is able to tune in and, and listen. To hear more from Dr. Sung, tune into episode 12 of the People of Pathology podcast. Great. Big thanks to Dr. Bobby Pritt for being on the show today. Check out the link in the show notes to the creepy, dreadful, wonderful Parasites blog and some of the other things we talked about today. You'll definitely want to check out the blog, uh, especially to see what the special uh, Valentine's Day theme is. There are a couple of new places you can listen to the People of Pathology podcast. One is on LabVine. You can search for it on the VineStream channel. And then the other place is called Doc Social. This is a social media site just for healthcare workers. You don't have to be a doctor to sign up. Any healthcare professional is welcome there. And both of these places are free to sign up. Of course, you can always follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And there's a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.